This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey everybody, Joshua Lewis here with The Remnant Radio. We've got an exciting interview today. We're in a different space. We're out here in Houston renting out this space uh, for a conference that uh, Michael uh, Roundtree and Michael Miller are both participating in. And I'm just kind of snagging some really cool interviews in the meantime. Uh, we are on the other line with Dr. Tim Mackey from The Bible Project. Uh, it's so honored to have him here today. Before we give a moment for him to introduce himself and his ministry, we're going to talk a little bit about Remnant Radio, who we are and what we do. Uh, we are a theology broadcast. We interview pastors and teachers from across the world. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Mackey, you might also be familiar with the, the Bible Project podcast. He's interviewed people like it's amazing. Uh, 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 Carmen Imes and N.T. Wright, guys that we've had on our show. Uh, we've also interviewed Dr. Michael Heiser, Craig Keener, Sam Storms, Jack Deere, uh, Wayne Grudem, the list goes on. So if you're interested in a theological conversations with people outside of your specific denomination, Remnant Radio is a great chance for you to do that. So go ahead and hit subscribe like the video and see other content that we're coming out with. Uh, man, speaking of, yeah, speaking of other, speaking content. of, yeah. So, well, first of all, what we did last night, which we also did right here in the studio, we've been here for, uh, the week. And, uh, and so yesterday we talked about, is there such a thing as a balanced charismatic or yeah. charismatic approach? And, and we talked about some of the, the maybe pitfalls of the charismatic movement as well as, uh, some of the beauty and power of it and kind of just what does it look like to pursue that in a balanced way. And so we, we uh, had a great episode on that last night. And then tomorrow we have one coming out. Uh, we've been kind of slow dripping these Todd White interviews. So uh, is Todd White a prosperity gospel preacher? We addressed this very thing with him, asked him some very pointed questions, and I think you'll have an answer uh, from the horse's mouth. Uh, so that'll drop tomorrow at four o'clock. Tomorrow at four. Yeah. So uh, those are just a few things that we have uh, we have going on. And uh, Dr. Mackey, we're so excited to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks. Really good to talk with you guys. And uh, sorry to be awkward, but you'll make me uncomfortable if you call me doctor. Okay. <laughs> okay. Tim, Tim it is. Everybody's a little bit different. We've yeah, actually, totally. we have yeah. some people... Some people say the opposite. They're like, uh, yeah. actually, could you call me doctor? <laughs> <laughs> and that's always more awkward than asking you to to remove the doctor exactly. than being told. No, I, t- I totally get it. But just to you know, put the, put those cards on the table. Yeah, okay. do that. Tell us I about yourself. Uh, There's seven and nine. And um, whenever my wife sarcastically calls me doctor, they just think it's the funniest thing. In the world. <laughs> oh, things just, just, uh, you're, uh, like, you're not a real doctor. You're just a doctor. Of, oh, uh, like, like you don't do surgery. So you're not a real doctor. <laughs> yeah, that's it. No, that's right. right. So Michael's uh, mic is coming a little hot. Yeah. So Tim, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and about the Bible project? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, I live here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I grew up here and um, I have been a pastor for many years. Um, I went to school for far too long. I just loved everything in biblical studies, especially ancient Jewish backgrounds, ancient 
Near Eastern backgrounds, literature, all that stuff. And uh, so, but what I found was that I wanted to play a role translating the best of biblical scholarship, biblical theology into the life and mission of the local church. So I went in the local church ministry um, for a lot of years, just teaching. And um, I was moved back here to Portland after being in graduate school, and I had a friend who, um, while I was getting a PhD in like ancient Hebrew, uh, he was developing employable skills <laughs> here in Portland, <laughs> uh, starting an animation uh, company that made explainer videos, mostly for tech companies. Um, his name's John Collins, and uh, he pitched to me the idea of starting uh, a YouTube channel where we made short animated videos explaining biblical theology. And so we started that project about uh, six years ago, actually about seven. Um, we launched the YouTube channel uh, called The Bible Project in 2014. And it's uh, just been a wild roller coaster ride since then. Everything you make has millions of videos. It's really amazing. Many, or millions, many, of millions of views. Views. Yeah. Michael's showing his age. He goes, uh, <laughs> everything he makes makes millions of videos. I, I'm so old. <laughs> <laughs> He's like five years older than I am. Okay. I'm just picking on him. So, Josh, what's our topic for today? So, uh, today, what we'd like to discuss is kind of the uh, the supernatural worldview, talking about angels, demons, the Elohim, the spiritual beings in the heavenly places, the powers that be. Uh, and we'd love to just pick your brain. The Bible Project uh, did a couple of videos and, and a full playlist that you have on your channel uh, discussing these Elohim, discussing these spiritual beings and podcasts you guys have released uh, on Spotify and iTunes and everything else. I'd love to unpack some of that uh, today. Could you maybe introduce us into this idea for those of us who are Westerners trying to grapple with the understanding of a, of a spiritual non-material world out there? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, uh, you're right. So we did a... Um, we did a long video series. It was actually our longest uh, little mini-series up to that point. We did seven videos exploring this whole theme in the storyline of the Bible. And really, I, I chose to move towards it because personally, it made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> and it was so, uh, as I really dug deeper into this theme and the difference between the view of reality that the biblical authors have versus the, the view that I was raised with as a modern West Coaster in America, uh, I just, I, I realized like I have to get, take this to the bottom uh, or else the Bible is going to remain just a bizarre, strange other world to me. And so uh, it, it all of a sudden, like three or four years later, I emerged with some clarity, <laughs> some intellectual clarity about what all these things are going on in the Bible. Uh, but still personally for me, you know, it's uh, it feels like a, adopting a, a different view of the world than the one that feels natural to me. So I'm happy to talk about it, but don't mistake me for somebody who actually like still so, like, you know, uh, yeah. uh, lives in the world as if I really believe all this is true. I, I actually still have to choose it as a, a, a worldview that feels a bit foreign to me still. But that's OK. Mm -hmm. We're all on a journey, aren't we? Yeah, that's Absolutely. great. So where do we even begin this conversation? I mean, you've got, yeah. I mean, the yeah. the Elohim, the sons of God, you've got powers and principalities uh, in the New Testament. You've got Book of Daniel, a different you yeah. know, Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece. There's so many places to dive in. Should we yeah. just start 
at the beginning in Genesis? What, yeah. what do you think is the best oh, yeah, starting ab- point? Absolutely. For me, um, understanding Genesis 1 and the concept of the cosmos that it's um, trying, to, trying to invite us into is crucial. Actually, none of the biblical story will make sense if you don't understand the shape of the cosmos that's laid out in Genesis 1. So let's do start there. Okay. Um, so, oh man, Genesis do, 1. Do you, do you actually, do you have an <laughs> illustration that you could like accompany? I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm used to hearing your your voice with an illustration in the background. Yeah. So Yeah, I need... We need cartoons. We need cartoons. <laughs> you know, actually, we are um, piloting a new type of video series that's going to uh, come out hmm, later this fall, 2020. Uh, it's going to be called Visual Commentaries. Um, hmm. And uh, they're going to be, yeah, just that, Visual Commentaries. And so they're going to be unpacking the literary design and main themes, but of individual chapters or literary units throughout the Bible. So cool. And uh, wow. the first pilot video is Genesis 1. <laughs> uh, and I'm so excited about it um, because cool. this, uh, it, it, totally. So uh, first off, Genesis one is actually not Genesis one. It's Genesis one verse one to two verse three. And uh, just on page one, the, our medieval scholars botched the the literary units, <laughs> and so it's kind of mm. unfortunate. So the literary unit goes from okay, got it. So, uh, but it's not that that big of a deal because you can still see that the author has uh, repeated all of the words of the opening lines of Genesis 1 but and repeated them in the closing lines of Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. If you mm-hmm. do a comparison, it's like a bookend around the, um, the six days that are in the, in the middle of the two bookends. So what's important for understanding the spiritual realm um, is, you know, the, uh, Genesis 1 opens with darkness and uh, w- wilderness, wild and waste, uh, and then these waters, these dark waters. Um, and we won't get into all of the debates that unfold from there. Um, but what happens, that everybody agrees on, is God speaks over a series of um, seven days. He speaks ten times over the course of seven days. And the, six, the first six days, their literary design is really important. Um, the first thing that God does is do three acts of separating that take the darkness and the waters and to begin to split them into ordered realms. So he splits light from dark, um, the waters from the waters, and then uh, the land from the waters as the dry land emerges. That's days one, two, and three. And um, so what happens, days one through three is about God creating these realms. So you have the realm of time or the order of time. Um, which we don't think of as a place, but it's different for the biblical authors. Um, day two is about um, those waters, those dark waters get split in half. And this is a very common ancient Near Eastern creation motif that the biblical author is is developing and actually kind of polemicizing, doing a little trash talk against. But that's a whole other conversation. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But but the splitting of the waters is something that God does uh, without any effort, just with his word. Whereas Marduk, you know, the patron god of Babylon, I mean, he almost died trying to split the waters. and He was yeah. barely able to do it with all of his strength. Anyhow, so um, but what that gives you is um, the waters below and the waters above, uh, which are called, the, the waters above are called sky. And then you get, on day three, you get the land. That's days one through three. So what happens on days four, five, and six um, is that you now have these three realms. You have this, the waters above, you have the sky 
then you have the land, and then the waters below. It's a three-tiered cosmos. And what happens on days four, five, and six is um, the, the order returns, and God begins to fill each of those unique realms with inhabitants. So mm-hmm. he uh, places inhabitants in the skies. They're called uh, lamps. In Hebrew, it's the word ma'or. It's the same word used for the lamp in the tabernacle. Um, mm-hmm. Places the lamps up in the sky, um, and it never uses the word sun or moon. Uh, it just uses the, the words big lamp and small lamp, uh, and then also mm-hmm. the stars. The stars like just get a passing mention. So you get big lamp, little lamp, uh, and the big lamp rules over the day, and the little lamp rules over the night. Okay, that's important. Um, so they're they're up there, and uh, and the thing that God was doing, separating day and night, which God did on day one, He gives the, that responsibility now over to these lamps. He says they are the ones who are now going to separate day and night. Day five, uh, God put sky flyers uh, who fly against the waters above, and then the water swarmers who swim in the waters beneath, and then day six you get the land. So you can just see you're just systematically working through the three tiers of the cosmos. And um, on land, there's two cre- two sets of creatures. There's the land creatures and beasts and crawlers and, and so on. And then the last kind of pinnacle creature is humans, um, who are God's image. And God tells them to rule as his image on the land. So notice that symmetry between the inhabitants in the skies above who rule over day and night, and then there's the land dwellers who rule over the land. Do you see that? So that, mm-hmm. that's an important pairing or symmetry. There's the rulers above, and there's the rulers mm-hmm. below. And they're each given their own um, realms of responsibility. The rulers above do stuff that rulers above do. They, they, they guard the, um, the order of time, their markers. Um, the rulers below don't belong up in the sky. They belong on the land because there they image and reflect God who is above the heavens of the heavens, as Solomon says in 1 Kings 8. And so you have this symmetry right there in Genesis 1 between these, these rulers above and rulers uh, below. And then what you get after um, those six days is a little summary statement that says, um, and thus were finished the skies and the land and all of their... And the word is hosts. Um, Hmm. And you maybe know that phrase from the Lord of hosts. Mm -hmm. Um, Or in older translations, it's um, the Lord's sabaoth. It's dispelling the Hebrew word with English letters. But the word hosts is, um, and so it's really important. It's right there in Genesis 2 verse 1. The hosts above of heaven and the hosts of the land below. Um, Now I'm pretty sure hosts of heaven might trigger some uh, associations in in our minds. Um, they're the ones singing, you know, on all our Christmas cards, the host of heaven, they're the ones singing when Jesus is born. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the host of the skies is the standard biblical term that's going to be used for um, these figured call, figures called Elohim or the sons of Elohim, uh, uh, sp- spiritual beings. And so the worldview is actually right there in Genesis 1. There is a heavenly realm that's above and transcendent, and it has different kinds of inhabitants than here on the land below. And heaven and earth are mirrors of each other in Genesis 1. 
the rulers below mirror the rulers above. Um, and who rules over all of them? It's, you know, the, the creator of, of all things. And so um, the biblical authors don't spend a lot of time here, but that realm above and its inhabitants just hum in the background uh, as you go on into the rest of the biblical story. And But every once in a while, <laughs> these characters from that parallel realm, so to speak, pop onto the main stage. Um, and so we can talk about those, but th this was so helpful for me to see this is the, the cosmos that the biblical authors are inviting us into. And just one more comment. I'm not very concise. You get me excited about things and I talk for a long this is time. Great. Hey, keep it coming. But uh, uh, the Genesis 1 is using vertical spatial language to talk about these two parallel realms, right? He heaven, the heavens above. And that's going to continue um, right out throughout the biblical story. However, the biblical authors are going to go on to nuance and show that heaven and earth even though there's the spatial words like up and down, the biblical authors have a way more sophisticated view of these two parallel realms because heaven and earth can overlap in the same exact space. Um, like in Jacob's dream, where he wakes up, or he has this vision or dream, and he sees heaven and earth are connected by the stairway ramp. And mm -hmm. he sees the host of heaven going up and down, traffic between heaven and earth. Um, so the uh, temples, high places, mountains, Eden, um, these are all places where heaven and earth are the same thing, the same place. Um, and so um, earthly characters can encounter heaven and its inhabitants right here on earth. Um, and so that you know gets us into a whole kind of other set of questions. It's really cool. But it continues into the New Testament. Paul the Apostle talks about the powers and principalities and rulers that are in the heavenly realms. But then he'll also use those same titles to talk about people and institutions that he sees around him on earth. And so it's a pretty sophisticated view of two parallel realities. And one of them is seen and visible, and the other one is hazy and not always visible to us. But there are moments where we can encounter that heavenly reality right right here. Okay, I should so like the the like Bible readers today, right? Like if they were to pick up a, a book in Genesis and uh, they had no context for ancient Near Eastern culture, they had no context of Christianity, they had no uh, biblical literacy, and they were to read the book of Genesis, pick up, they'd see sun and moon, right? They'd go, okay, probably like they just would, they would see the big lamp and the little lamp, <laughs> right? Right. So so yeah. So so they they wouldn't. I wouldn't imagine because I don't know of a translation that has big lamp and little lamp, right? <laughs> they they would see they would yeah. see sun and moon. They would see, you know, uh, yes. the, the creatures coming forth from the earth, yeah. these luminaries. They yeah. would see yeah. uh, man ruling the day. But then if they continue reading the story, like you said, it, it talks about uh, the hosts and all all in them. Uh, they would they would have to then read, okay, I, I've learned about what hosts are. They'd read and then they'd go back on the cycle and they'd read again. And then they would read with an entire different context mm -hmm. uh, to say, oh, I because I've read, I can actually read some of these things back into Genesis. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. Do, do you, or, is that a, is that a helpful way of kind of communicating? Because people reading this in yeah. an English Bible are going to see that's a sun, that's a moon. Let's move on. But you're actually saying that there there are key phrases uh, when you're talking about the hosts, when you're talking about these luminaries. We see actually in other places in scriptures that these stars that fall from heaven, when the heavens are shaken. These different kinds of texts that are um, in in many cases uh, very 
uh, eschatological in many situations, talking about uh, the end times, mm. uh, that they, they refer to stars in the heavens as mm. being these spiritual things and spiritual beings. So we're able to kind of peer in on that worldview and then go back and reread after we've learned, mm. I guess, some of the worldview of the Bible. Is that, a, is that a helpful way to help coach those who are tuning in that just see sun and moon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's maybe two two things there. One is the, the nature how biblical literature works. Um, the early chapters of Genesis introduce everything you're going to encounter in the rest of the Bible, but usually hmm. in seed form. Um, and what will happen in the rest of the biblical story will be the sprouting and blossoming of some core word or idea that was planted there, so to speak. In usually it's mostly Genesis chapters one through eleven. So I, I forgot to say this. In Genesis 1.14, these lights up above are called signs. That's the first thing that, that God calls them. He puts them up there to be signs um, and markers of the days, seasons, and years. But the first word he uses is signs. Uh, it's the Hebrew word ot. Uh, and it's the Hebrew word for uh, symbol, for something that stands for another thing. Um, so um, when... Oh, when Moses famously, you know, is um, doing the signs and wonders before Pharaoh, like throwing his staff down and becomes a serpent and that kind of thing. These are called signs. So they're symbols of God's power. And so that's what this, that's what these lights are called in, in Genesis 1 verse 14. So what on earth does that mean? Um, I don't know if it's ever occurred to you. Like, why does it say that they're signs? Um, and I think it. You have to read on, well, what do they correspond to? The rulers above and the rulers below. Um, we're told that the, the creatures below who rule are also signs and symbols. They are called the image. And so um, the lights above in the, in the biblical author's imagination, they don't think of them the same way that we do, as huge balls of fiery plasma gas right like pumba said from the lion king great balls of gas in the sky yeah totally yes yeah, so. pumba got brought into this discussion i'm yes. sorry well, pumba wasn't created till the sixth day bro i know I'm, my bad uh, we're, we're still we're still talking about luminaries continue yeah. so i so this is a big important topic in genesis one is that many of the debates modern debates around genesis one are trying to translate the view of the cosmos and material reality that the biblical authors have in the language in Genesis 1, but make it fit our modern view of mm -hmm. physics yeah. and the universe and so on. And um, so what we need to do is check, check our concepts of the universe at the door and then let the biblical authors help us see the world from their point of view, which is an ancient point of view. And we should respect it as such so we can understand what they're saying. And so, the, yes, on page one of Genesis, we're being told that the lights are symbols of the divine light and power that's behind the whole universe. But just like humans are, symbols of that divine power and beauty here on the land below. And so, you know, did they actually think that they're like beings and, and creatures? Um, and it's actually a, a more difficult question <laughs> to answer. And I still don't have a concise way to talk about it. Um, Israel's neighbors in Canaan and Babylon would often depict their deities as stars, but then mm -hmm. they would also have other symbols uh, and language to talk about them too. And so uh, whatever, what, whatever else you want to say is that the heavenly hosts are called signs and symbols on Gen Genesis 1 verse 14. And I think that gives us that little seed 
planted there of the rulers huh. above um, there. Um, and the way we conceive of these lights is that they are symbols. They're pointers to um, someone who is greater and above and, and beyond them. And uh, right. so, so, yeah. Okay. So I want to, I want to ask, so when God creates these stars and these luminaries up in the sky, are, is he at the same time creating these angelic beings or is he merely creating the physical cosmos, but he's saying, Hey, this physical cosmos speaks of something else also. Yeah. Uh, so that's the trick. That second step that you're making is the step I want to make too, but it's the step where I'm translating the biblical imagery into my view of the universe. Does that make sense? In mm -hmm. other words, and what I want to do is keep myself from doing that. <laughs> okay. And so I don't think for the biblical authors there's any difference between those lights up there and the things that they symbolize, which is sentient, intelligent creatures that uh, often appear and interact in, in um, the world and called by different terms, the hosts of heaven, angels, um, spiritual beings, and so on. I don't think they see a separation, whereas we do. Okay. We're like, well, but we know it's just a ball of, of gas. Okay. Um, and, and as a follow-up question, you, you talked about the lamp. And uh, what's the significance of the, the big lamp, the little lamp, oh, that yeah. language yes. for you. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. it has to do with uh, what the tabernacle represents. Um, so the tabernacle was a little miniature cosmos. Um, it was a little, um, and so you have, and, and then it gets translated out into the temple. You have the outer courtyard where that huge thing of waters uh, mm -hmm. was, and it was called the sea. <laughs> That's what mm -hmm. it's called. And then you go inside into the next layer and you go through a, a door. You go inside into this place called the holy place. And what you see are all of these land creatures and plants. And then you go inside the holy of holies. And what you see are two big heavenly creatures, the, the cherubim, uh, winged heavenly creatures. And so it itself is a, is a mirror. And so it's as if you're passing by, you're passing through the heavens up into God's realm when you pass by the menorah, the lamp, in that mm -hmm. second tier of holy space. Um, so th uh, the tabernacle is all designed as a symbolic cosmos where uh, humans can go from heaven and ascend up into the heavens. The Holy of Holies is heaven um, on earth, which is why there's those heavenly creatures inside of it um, that, that are form God's throne, as he says in the book of Isaiah. So uh, I guess I have two questions. I'm going to preface. The first one is you talked about heavenly creatures. Mm -hmm. So what what categories of heavenly creatures are there? And then that follow-up question would be, you, you talked about them being symbols. We're mm -hmm. being symbols. We are marked with an Imago Dei. Mm -hmm. So my first question, mm -hmm. and I can repeat mm -hmm. the, the follow-up question. My first question is, what kind of spiritual beings are there? And are they all image bearers? Are some of them image bearers? How does that work out? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so first, when you're asking Tim, I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's I'm, a good I'm happy safe to tell answer. you what I've been able to conclude as I've really tried and worked through the whole Bible and how all, all this works out. So as you go throughout the biblical story, the vocabulary to refer to these parallel beings in the parallel reality, it, it diversifies. You get a diversity. You get a phrase in Hebrew called the B'nai Elohim or the, the sons of Elohim. 
mm-hmm. um, which is often translated the sons of God. They appear uh-huh. in Genesis 6 uh, for, for the first time. Um, and they, they appear right on, right on throughout the biblical story. Um, it, it, it's a Hebrew turn of phrase. To, uh, when you use the phrase um, sons of such and such, it's a way of saying members of that group. Like Elijah and Elisha have this crew who's always like following them around in their stories, and they're called the sons of the prophets. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean that Elijah and Elisha like had a lot of wives and had all these sons. It was, it was their <laughs> crew. It was their prophetic crew. They're members of the group called prophets. And so uh, the sons of God are members of the category of being called Elohim, um, which in Hebrew is a category title. Uh, it's not a name. Uh, Elohim, which gets translated as capital G, God, um, which is kind of confusing because it's not actually a title in Hebrew. It's a category title, like human. Um, and, uh-huh. and it means a, a, a non-visible, an inhabitant of that heavenly realm. Um, and so the sons of Elohim, they're called the hosts of the skies. Um, the, and then what happens is that a metaphor starts developing um, that is called in Psalm 89 and Psalm 82 uh, a divine counsel. And so if it's a way of conceiving of God's presence in the heavens of the heavens, above the heavens. And um, God is depicted um, by the biblical authors as a king sitting with his heavenly court in a throne room. Um, and so this appears throughout the biblical story. And sometimes biblical prophets, you know, they wake up in dreams and they are there. They're in the throne room, um, like Isaiah or uh, Micaiah ben Imla in in 1 Kings chapter 22. And uh, they see the hosts of heaven. And so you get this idea that there's like, just like in a royal king's or queen's court, there's all these courtiers. And some are messengers and some are counselors and some are this and that. And there's narratives about God actually consulting with this crew and talking with them and making group decisions. Uh, the book of Job begins with, you know, this whole crew. They're called the sons of God. Um, so that's where you get the development of the concept of tiers um, or different l- levels of species of these creatures. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, again, we're just given tiny tidbits in the biblical story. You mentioned the, uh, some that appear in the book of Daniel. They're called princes. Um, uh, and Paul has a developed vocabulary, um, as well as other Jews of his time period, of rulers and authorities and powers, principalities and so on. Um, but So there's a lot we don't know. What we do know is all of that language of, of different types of spiritual beings comes from that core metaphor of the royal court of the creator God. And however powerful these beings are, uh, none of them are ever rivals, true rivals of the creator God, uh, they're always subservient um, to him, even ones that, you know, turn malevolent, uh, like the, the Satan. Yeah, let's let's talk about the Satan okay. for a moment. Let's talk about okay. the serpent in Genesis 3. Yeah. So what is, am I good on my microphone here? You are, it's starting. Tell it to obey. <laughs> <laughs> so Genesis 3, take us there. How does this relate to the divine counsel? Yeah. Well, so again, uh, um, as you go throughout the Hebrew Bible, this image of the divine council, uh, and, and maybe if you're viewing, you're like, this guy's crazy. Like, what's he talking about? 
I just I urge you to go uh, consider Psalm 89, the beginning of Psalm 89, um, or Psalm 82, where the poet, the whole point of what the poet is saying is, um, who among all of these beings in the heavenly court are like the one creator God, Yahweh? The biblical authors believe in a populated spiritual realm. Um, and so uh, when you go back, to the Garden of Eden narrative, you, you notice a couple things. Uh, what you notice is that this is a heaven and earth spot. It's where God's presence and humans are in the same place. Um, you'll notice some details that later biblical authors will pick up on to help you see that Eden is on a high mountain. Um, and even there's a detail in the story that's pretty obvious because you're told that one river goes out of Eden and then as it, after it leaves Eden, then it separates and waters the four corners of the earth. Um, and I, last time I checked, water always goes downhill. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> right at the very conception. And Ezekiel and Isaiah both call Eden on the, a mountain. Um, so it's a high mountain spot. Mountains in the Bible are heaven and earth spots. Um, but there's heavenly creatures there. Do you remember when God posts the cherubim? which are the same creatures guarding the divine presence in the tabernacle. He posts two like live ones, not metal ones, like real ones, at the boundary uh, of Eden and then like the normal world. And so, you know, there's cherubim cruising around the garden, right? There's earth beings and there's um, heavenly beings. So here's something that's interesting. When the cherubim are depicted throughout the biblical story, there are these... Um, uh, uh, hi, um, oh man, we made a we made a whole video about the cherubim. I can't remember the word right now. They have they're multiform. Um, they're like uh -huh. multi. They have multiple animals mashed into one. Yeah. Uh, so they have wings and lions. Hybrid. And hybrid. Yes. Yeah. 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 Sorry. I was gonna go with mutant, but it's, like, <laughs> it's probably <laughs> like blasphemy. I don't know. So what the Profane. cherubim are is they are <laughs> they're creatures in whom every earthly creature is symbolized. That's what mm -hmm. they're multiform. Yes. Uh -huh. They represent land creatures, air creatures, sometimes sea creatures. They represent all of the creatures of the, land, of, of the world. And what they do is they're God's courtiers, um, or they're depicted in the book of Isaiah as singing. Now here's what's fascinating. In the book of Isaiah, when he depicts in a vision that he has about the divine throne and surrounding it are these creatures. He doesn't call them cherubim. He calls them snakes. Um, yeah. Now, something odd has happened in the history of our English translations um, because it's the normal word snake, seraph, um, that's used there. But our English translations refuse to translate the word snake there. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so they just spell the Hebrew word with English letters, seraphim. Um, but, but it's the normal Hebrew word for snake. As, um, so I, I think, to be honest, that are, are, I think English translators are just too freaked out to like take people there. There um, can't be snakes in heaven. Snakes are mean, and they have and they have wings. Yeah, they're flying yeah. snakes, which is like as normal as can be of an icon in the ancient. Era. I was about to say, isn't that the most universal symbol in every form of pagan worship across the world? Is it was, like it was, there's it, flying serpent snakes, like these dragons that are in. Standard motif in Egyptian religious yeah. art. Um, it was a standard motif um, in Babylonian art and in ancient in, Israelite art. We have ancient Israelite 
like archaeological artifacts that have snakes with wings on them. Yeah, it's, and you've got it's in Asia, it's in uh, uh, South America. I mean, we've, they've got dragons everywhere. Yeah, totally. So okay, so um, so, you, so you have this heavenly serpent being in yeah. Isaiah chapter six. <clears throat> English <throat> translators call it a seraphim. And uh, and so you're making a connection between that and Genesis three. It sounds like um, I won't die on this hill, um, but it seems to me somebody reading through the Hebrew Bible regularly, which I think someone is assuming the ideal reader of the Hebrew Bible does, um, that you will go as you go through the Hebrew Bible. When you come back to that snake, you have a category for the type of creature that it is. It seems to have knowledge about God's heavenly decisions and purposes. And it's on a mission to deceive the humans. Um, and that's one thing. Two, there's a strong motif throughout the whole book of Genesis of disguised deceivers. Uh, people donning disguises in order to deceive people to usurp their place. Uh, and usually it's a younger person trying to overturn an older, usually an older sibling. So think of what Jacob does his brother, Tamar, uh, tricks Judah with the disguise. Um, uh, Joseph tricks his older brothers by donning the disguise and so on. So these are design patterns that the biblical authors weave in. And you go back to that snake and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> so, uh, so that's what I think we're being invited to see in Genesis 3 is a rebel heavenly being. A, a heavenly being that wasn't satisfied with its role as a delegated ruler. Uh, and it, what it tried to do is usurp the power uh, and authority of uh, the humans. And uh, that's why the snake uh, is exiled. He's, he's made to eat the dust, uh, and to, which is a symbol of shame and, and death. Uh, and he's also, um, uh, as it were, exiled uh, uh, from Eden. He goes out there with them, because then all of a sudden you have these, this malevolent spiritual being who's like chasing the humans around and getting them to do terrible things to each other. Oh, and, and he's right there in Genesis chapter four. Um, when God says to Cain, when Cain's really angry, well, first of all, okay, this is Genesis four, verse seven. This is so awesome, you guys. So Genesis four, <laughs> verse seven, um, this is when Cain um, realizes that God is favoring his younger brother's offering. And so what God says to Cain, as Cain's, Cain's uh, face falls, and um, he gets angry. And so God comes up and he says, Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face um, fallen? And um, what God says, literally, uh, in Hebrew is, if uh, you do good, won't there be exaltation? But if you do not do good, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Um, a lot of people throughout history think the door is somehow like a metaphor for his heart or mind, like there's sin is crouching, you know, at the door. Um, but uh, it's a, it's a, that's not how you use, talk about hearts in biblical Hebrew. There's no such thing as the door of the heart. Um, whereas there's a perfectly good explanation for the door or the entrance um, in the narrative. It's the entrance back to Eden that they just got kicked out of. And so they're there offering sacrifices at the door of Eden, which is the natural thing you would do, right, if you want to get back in, you, just like the, the altar, right, at the entrance of the tabernacle, same exact parallel. And so what, yeah, what we're being told is that there is a malevolent being 
whose desire is to consume and devour king. It's at the door. <laughs> it's mm. as if the, the snake's loose and he wants you to. Um, but, but what's important is that the creature is not called the snake. It's called sin. Sin has become an animal, as it were. Um, and so welcome to Paul's theology of sin in the letter to the Romans, right? Sin mm -hmm. and death seizing. It's like he personifies it. Uh -huh. yes. Yeah. Or, or rather, you could say that Paul is using the personification of the snake as sin from Genesis 4. And so to, to just, you know, I encourage you listeners, go check out Romans 7. What Paul is doing there is retelling the story of the human condition as it's explored in Genesis 3 and 4. Because sin is a being that can deceive and consume and kill and enslave you, just like um, the sin does in Genesis 4. And so by the time you leave Genesis 4, it's just stories about selfish, stupid humans doing terrible things to each other. And those first two stories, the Eden story and Genesis 4, set the groundwork for all of it. And so there'll be little clues where some kind of being might pop up its head in a story, but for the most part, um, uh, these malevolent spiritual beings are just kind of cruising in the background uh, of all of all of the narratives uh, until you get to some later biblical books, and then uh, it's as if Jesus flushes him out of the bushes. <laughs> and now, uh, when when you get to the Gospels and the story of Jesus, it's just the snake and his minions are just everywhere. So you know, you said a couple times that uh, the seed form is found in Genesis. We can find seeds in Genesis one through eleven. Mm -hmm. uh, we've talked about these spiritual beings. Um, there's this chapter six that has this story about these Nephilim. Um, yeah. In the sons, sons of, of God, God that's present yeah. there as well. Yes. Uh, so there's some seed form stuff going, and I don't mean to use the word seed in a sort of uh, joking <laughs> oh, I mean, way. Yeah. Um, uh, was no one was thinking that until you said it. <laughs> and, there it is. Uh, so, so I'd be curious. What, what's your understanding? I know there's a popular um, kind of uh, pushback against a supernatural worldview on this text to say mm -hmm. that the that the seed of the woman is like the the righteous seed of Seth, uh, mm -hmm. that his line, his descendant, uh, whereas uh, you know the descendants of Cain would be uh, not not a not a righteous seed. So I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's your take on that passage? And maybe explain those those Nephilim beings to us. It's yeah, the sons of God went into the yeah. daughters of men, and yeah. Nephilim came about somehow. So yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, it's very bizarre. And again, uh, just to make clear, the fact that I have come to feel like I, I have a I'm compelled of a certain explanation doesn't mean any of this is easy for me to believe. Oh, <laughs> yeah. sure. Hey, we oh. love your humility. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah we're right there with you. But but I'm, I, what I'm trying to be is open-minded, that the way that I happen to have been raised to see the universe and my culture, there is no reason why I should just take for granted that that's, the, that's what's really going on in the universe. You know, like what a presumptuous uh -huh. thing to think. Uh, for any Nothing culture. in your life experience has taught you that it's normal for angelic beings to come <laughs> down and reproduce with humans. Like that's, that's not part of your normal experience. You didn't learn that in Sunday uh, school? <laughs> totally. Uh, however, it was uh, a very uh, prominent story in the ancient world. So we'll get, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, okay. so, but let's just stick with Genesis. So an important way that biblical literature works is the biblical authors plant these seed ideas and themes in the first few pages of Genesis. And then they, what they start to do is play out the biblical story in what we call design patterns. We made a video about it 
the Bible Project, or cycles, so that later biblical stories are told uh, to in a, such a way as to resemble earlier stories, but often inverting them in, in creative ways. And so the Sons of God in Genesis 6 is a great example. Um, in Genesis 3, you have a woman talking to a spiritual being, and what we're told is she sees what is good in her eyes, and she takes what she wants for herself under the direction of a spiritual being. And what happens then is that humans, along with the spiritual beings, are exiled from the heaven on earth place down into the realm of, of death and mortality. So when you get to Genesis 6, what you have is the exact inversion of Genesis 3. You have the sons of Elohim, the sons of God, um, which you can do a, a quick word search on. That phrase appears about eight or nine different times in the Hebrew Bible, and it has one meaning and referent every single time it occurs. It's the, 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 the hosts of heaven, the spiritual beings above. It never once refers to uh, humans, the, the sons of Elohim. Now it does mm -hmm. in the New Testament, um, but that's an, an additional layer in development of, what we're, of what's going on in, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, so Psalm 89, uh, Psalm 82, um, the book of Job, and a couple others. So that's the first step. Second is, so what do I make of this um, story? Well, pay attention to the wording. What we're told is that the sons of Elohim, sons of God, they see women that they are good. Our translations often have that they are beautiful, but it's the Hebrew word good, and the structure of that sentence is copied and pasted from Genesis 3, uh, verse mm -hmm. 6. The woman saw that saw. it was good, and she wow. took the sons of Elohim see that the women are good and they take them for themselves. Wow. So Genesis 3 is depicting a human rebellion. And, and what is the human rebellion? The snake says that you can be like Elohim if you eat from the fruit. And so here you have Elohim, sons of Elohim, taking human women. It's exactly the inverse of Genesis 3. And so if Genesis 3 is about earth creatures trying to become like the heavenly creatures by their own wisdom. Genesis 6 is about the heavenly beings trying, going out of their proper realm of authority and trying to seize and take power um, and take, take women uh, on the earthly realm. Does that make sense? They're exactly the mm -hmm. inverse of each other. Yeah. Um, and so what results is, uh, a, um, well, what we're told in the parallelism, there's too much detail here, but the way... Um, Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4 is designed as, as a, a chiasm, this cool little literary symmetry. And the, at the outer ends of it are the sons of God taking the women. And then at the bottom end of it is these creatures, so to speak, called the Nephilim, uh, which means giants. Um, it's also spelled with the same Hebrew letters as the, as the word fallen ones, ones who have fallen. Uh, and th that's actually where we get the word fall from to describe Genesis 3. It's not from Genesis mm. 3, it's from Genesis 6. Isn't that interesting? So um, mm. what uh, we're told is that around the same time that that thing happened with the sons of Elohim and these human women, you know who just happened to be on the scene at that same time? Was these huge warriors called the Nephilim. They're men of the name. They're, they're, they are men who gain um, their reputation uh, through battle, um, 
And um, the first of these guys that you're going to meet is in Genesis chapter 10. It's a guy named Nimrod, who is the founder of the city of Babylon. And he's a man of the name. Everybody loves to say his name, like Nimrod, a great hunter before the Lord. People love his name, just like they love the name of, of the Nephilim in Genesis 6. And so what we're told in between there is when God sees, he now has a re rebellion of earthly creatures trying to be like Elohim, and now he has a heavenly rebellion trying to merge with earthly creatures. And so what God decides is he says, uh, my spirit is not going to either contend or dwell. Uh, there's a translation debate there. Uh, but what he says is 120 years and this thing's over. Um, and what many people think is what God is doing is putting a, a lifespan limit on humans because of what the sons of Elohim did, which is kind of odd. Um, it's also odd because you're going to meet tons of people who live longer than 120 years in the rest of the mm -hmm. story. Um, but if you pay attention to the chronology of the ages of those, all those patriarchs given in chapter 5, what you'll find Lo and behold, and this is the earliest Jewish interpretation, is that the flood begins 120 years after uh, the, the narrative in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. Um, so I know I'm getting nerdy and kind of detailed here, but the point is that this story seems so odd to us, but it's the biblical author's way of describing how um, the kingdoms of our world, and, and for the biblical authors, this meant Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, um, they are the product and the result of human and spiritual rebellions that result in catastrophic violence and bloodshed in our world. And these, are, these were ancient empires where, where the king and, and the warrior's valor on the battlefield, like, you know, cracking heads and slitting throats, this is how you become a man of the name. Like those Nephilim in Genesis six verse. Yeah, these are the heroes of the ancient world. Read the read Homer's Odyssey, and it's the whole story about them. <laughs> and so, um, what the biblical authors are telling us with this story is that um, when we, when we look out at a violent government, you know, here in our modern worldview, we just think like, oh, stupid humans, bad policy. And with the biblical authors, what Paul the apostle wants us to see, um, and this isn't just Paul's idea. Uh, this goes all the way back to Genesis 6, is to say, no, nah, man, there's two realms overlapping here. And there are dark powers at work that are trying to destroy God's good world. And they've actually duped humans into thinking that the way we're going to like rule the world and get ahead is by slaughtering each other. <laughs> Right. This is as relevant. It's not very difficult. I mean, when you're talking about uh, modern worldview versus ancient yeah. Near Eastern worldview, it's yeah. not very difficult for a 21st century American to go, totally. yeah, I could see darkness in a political sphere right now. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. You're like, yes, darkness yeah. is everywhere. So um, you can get over the giant thing. This was yeah. their way. It was, a, it was their framework for talking about dark spiritual powers that are behind the, the, the violent empires of our world. So you would say the Nephilim is just a landmarker, a historical landmarker to say that when the sons of God took these women, the Nephilim, these giants, was a historical landmarker to say this is around that time when that happened. Uh, correct. Yep. And okay. what's interesting is the giants will continue to appear sporadically throughout the story. They're going to be in the land of Canaan. Um, 
when the Israelites go there, and you're going to have Caleb and Joshua who are like, hey, we can take them out. It's not a big deal. Um, and then the one who kills the last giant, the giant slayer, uh, is David. It's our boy David, yeah. Yep, and, and yeah. His, his, 30, his 33 men who kill a few after him. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, he, he's uh, in the Chronicles. They, they were talking about slaying giants, weren't right they? Um, totally, yep, that's exactly right. So and what he is, is he is that Genesis, in Genesis 3.15, when God um, exiles the humans, what he promises is that a seed will come from the woman who will crush the head of the snake. And so what you're looking for is a human who won't give in to the deception of the snake, uh, but rather who will overcome the snake. And David is the primary image of that messianic figure. That's why David and Goliath. In fact, actually, this is so cool. Um, Goliath's armor is um, really the focus of the David and Goliath story. And what you're told about every piece of armor is how much bronze it's made out of. And uh, the word bronze just appears all over that story. The word bronze is spelled with the same Hebrew letters as the word snake. I kid you not. <laughs> and huh. so in Hebrew, when you're looking at Goliath, what you see in Hebrew is just he's got snake all over him. And then David takes him out. Uh, and then, as it turns out, David himself gets seduced by sin, right, with Bathsheba. And he, from his roof, he sees a woman who is good, and he takes her. Yeah? Uh -huh. So David becomes like the rebel sons of God in the story of Bathsheba. Dang. Okay. And so, so, and so there you go. Uh, this all is, the whole point is this leading us to Jesus. <laughs> as, yeah. as he is the human in whom divine and human, image of God, image of man, heaven and earth meet together in one person. Um, and so the stories about him being tested in the wilderness is about he is the he is the anti Cain, <laughs> uh, and he's the anti Nephilim, and he defeats uh, um, the the tester in the wilderness, and then he's going to go on to do everything he's going to do. But the point is, is that Jesus sees himself stepping into this drama between this this battle of two realms, and that explains all of his exorcisms and why that was such a big deal to him. But it just strike me as kind of cool, but also weird about Jesus is that, you know, he was so, exorcism was such a big deal for him. But if you fit him into this story, with this view of the cosmos from Genesis 1, it makes perfect sense uh, why Jesus mm -hmm. is, is going around doing, doing what he's doing. And it makes perfect sense of why the Apostle Paul wants to invite us as followers of Jesus to see that these two realms are very much still in operation as we look out at our world today and, and that we are short-sighted if we only appeal to stupid humans for all of the stupid stuff go going around us. Paul very much wants us to see that that snake is still on the loose. He's still seducing us. Uh, and uh, that we have the snake crusher, Jesus, to look to as the one who, who uh, has delivered and, and will deliver us again. Amen. Amen. Now, a uh, question I have is, uh, I'm curious about where demons come from. Mm -hmm. And the reason I want to ask is because when I think about, so in Jude, it's around verse 8 or 9. I think it's yeah. verse 8. Yes. And it talks about how these uh, these beings were put in chains of gloomy darkness might be the word. Yeah. Uh, and, and from the context, it's not hard to see that he's drawing from Genesis 6. And he seems to be talking about these sons of God who were somehow punished in that time mm -hmm. by being put in these sort of gloomy chains of darkness, whatever that is. 
if I remember right, I think Peter calls it Tartarus. Yes. Uh, yes. And so you have these beings that are chained. So if they're chained in some sort of strange underworld prison, where are all the demons coming from? Yeah, totally. So one thing that the apostles did not do is sit down and have a conference where they like all <laughs> agreed to use the same language and imagery all the time. So we're Those getting darn apostles. The, this, the Tartarus conference. Yeah, Tartarus. <laughs> so Tartarus, Tartarus 2020. So that's the yeah, Greek. Let's do one. That's, uh, Tartarus is the Greek word um, used, and it's also reflected in se- in Second Peter as well. And, and uh-huh. Tartarus is the Greek standard Greek word used in um, Homer's Odyssey for the realm of the dead and the gods of the underworld. And so Mm -hmm. the biblical authors are participating always in a cultural conversation within their own ancient context as they work out these ideas. Um, Another key part of what both 2 Peter and Jude are doing is they are um, informed by Second Temple Jewish conversations happening about these things. And specifically, we know where one of the sources of these ideas is. It's in a text that Jude quotes from, uh, called uh, scholars call it First Enoch. Um, and so what, what First Enoch and other Jewish literature of the period tells us is the way that they understood the flood narrative was that the flood um, was where God um, thoroughly punished and destroyed the Nephilim and chained their um, their souls or spirits in, in the underworld. Um, but that um, the Satan, the snake figure, is on the loose, and he has certain minions from that crew who go about doing their work. This is why when Jesus meets that guy in the graveyard and he you know says, what is your name? And then what do they answer back to him? Legion. Legion. We're legion. We're Nephilim. They're warriors. They're Nephilim. They're the spirits of the Nephilim. Um, I know it sounds crazy, but th- that's what they mean. It, this is all connected for them. And so um, these spirits are chained or imprisoned in the underworld, but apparently they can also still be going about uh, doing damage. Uh, don't ask me to explain how that works, but it, that seems to be what's going on in these texts. Um, and, and the point of the Gospels about Jesus is that he is the one um, who has authority over heaven and earth and over these, the, over these creatures, which is why when he meets all of these spirits and, and demons, what they beg him not to do is don't destroy us yet, because they know that Jesus has control over their existence. Uh, they're just asking him not you know, to take control yet um, or not to destroy them uh, yet. And so that's that's my best understanding of what's going on. Yeah. Um, it doesn't cohere on a literal level, but in terms of the larger n- narrative of these creatures and their presence throughout the Bible, it, it does ma- make sense. Hmm. Okay, so you uh, so we've talked about their origins and kind of the development that, of that over time, and then we've talked about uh, what Jesus came to do and deal with the serpent. Maybe now we could talk about Pentecost and then the development of this into the church age. What does Pentecost do for the church in this battle between good and evil spirits? Yep. Well, so, I mean, we just we kind of glossed over the Jesus part, but that's actually really important. Um, when Jesus um, starts intentionally agitating the religious leaders of Israel, um, he goes to Jerusalem for Passover week. Um, on purpose, 
and he starts poking the bear, as it were. Uh, he pulls his stunt <laughs> in the temple, which is a very, I mean, all historians of first century Jesus scholarship agree that it was the thing he did in the temple that put the last big target on his back. It's the equivalent of storming like the White House here in America, right? Storming the White House lawn and saying that you're the president um, through your actions. You don't have to say it with your words. And so w when Jesus got arrested in, in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 22, 53, when he comes to get arrested by the soldiers, um, what he says, he says, this night belongs to you. This is your hour and the hour of the powers of darkness. In other words, Jesus sees himself confronting in the form of these Israelite joined by Roman power structures. He sees himself facing off not just against stupid humans, but against stupid humans who have bought into a lie about wh what is justice and what is good. And they are willing to murder an innocent man in the name of justice and goodness and peace. And that's the subtext going on. And Jesus says he's confronting the powers right then. Uh, and he's going to rob them of the only tool that they have, which is violence and death. And so that's a big part of what's going on in the death of Jesus. It's, it's his, what Paul will say, his triumph over the principalities and rulers and powers. And so what you see happen then when Jesus, like in Matthew, in the resurrection narrative, he says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. And so go out and announce to everybody that I am in charge of heaven and earth now. He's the image of God. He's the human who rules over heaven and earth. And so what he says in Matthew is, I will be with you to the end of the age. Luke gives us an extended narrative of what that with us means in the form of Pentecost. Um, now, there's a bunch of things going on with Pentecost um, in terms of layers of significance, but, but the, the coming of the wind and the fire over each individual person, this is a temple and tabernacle imagery of when the divine fire at Mount Sinai shifts to come over and dwell in the Holy of Holies over the, over the temple. And so what Luke is trying to say with the coming of the Spirit is that the same Spirit that empowered Jesus through nonviolent resistance and loving your enemies style kingdom of God to confront the powers, now Jesus' followers will be, or at least ought to be, uh, the same heaven and earth place that he was, but as little copies of him, so to speak. And so then they go on and they carry out the same mission in the world that he did, which is to announce that he's the boss um, and that he's the best boss you could ever dream for because uh, he loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And he died for you. Uh, Amen. And that uh, we don't have uh, to fear these, these principalities and power that meet us in the form of what Paul um, you know, when Paul talks about the principalities and powers in one place in 1 Corinthians 2, he says that they are the ones who crucified Jesus. And you're like, wait, I thought Caiaphas in league with Pilate crucified Jesus. And Paul would say, yes, that's exactly right. Um, <laughs> so Paul mm -hmm. wants us to view with suspicion, not unnecessary suspicion, but he always wants us to be aware the way that human communities, religious and political um, can begin to assume that their mission and method and goals and agenda is God's agenda. Uh, and what mm. human communities tend to do 
is we exalt to the place of God our particular cultural values and goods yep. and begin to obey them, to deify them, to sacrifice our lives or at least the lives of somebody. Maybe it's somebody or a group of people who, who we think are less significant than us. And there, and there you go. It's human history in a nutshell. And no, we, we, we were just talking about that today. Uh, we had a, a so couple powerful. pastor friends come to us and talk to us about like, um, in particular, they were asking about uh, specific charismatic expressions mm -hmm. that they felt like was just kind of idolatry that we just we started making such a big deal of our own culture, the charismatic culture mm -hmm. that we're actually just kind of um, really making making, uh, you know, like when you preach the Bible, you want to preach the Bible in proportions. You know, like you don't want to like uh, uh, preach your favorite section because then it becomes improportionate. Or and, yeah. and they're saying that that feels like what we're doing with our culture. Our mm. culture has been has become Christianity, mm. um, mm. when it's it's mm. not that it's not mm. it's not the the you know the Presbyterian culture, the Anglican culture, the Charismatic culture. It the, the Christian faith transcends culture in many ways. Yeah, uh, in that expression. Yeah, so. uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, the principalities and powers. In New, in, especially in the New Testament, are a very powerful set of glasses uh, that the New Testament is giving God's people to, to begin to see even their own church communities with a healthy dose of realism. Um, yeah. Because when our institutions and cultures are submitted to the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> the authority of Jesus, mm -hmm. man, amazing things can happen in the world. Amen. And something happens. We all know it. Because we see it all around us. We see it even in, inside of our own lives or families or subcultures. Something happens, and all of a sudden we, um, we are, are not acknowledging King Jesus, even though we might be a religious group that has Jesus' name like in the title. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and so I, all of a sudden you have a very powerful uh, set of lenses to begin to look uh, at all of my life through that's pretty darn compelling. Um, that has a way of helping me see and interact with my lived environment and culture in ways that my, again, my modern Western West Coast kind of secular materialist worldview just doesn't give me any tools for, uh, for dealing with this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, why, why is it that humans can so quickly as a group come to see that it's good to hurt other humans in the name of this new definition of good? How does that happen? And the biblical authors say, let me tell you how it happens. Humans aren't the only show in town. And um, if we don't account for some other parallel kind of reality that is interacting with ours, I think we have an impoverished view of the universe. And, you know, actually, I don't know that much about quantum physics, but I know enough to know that quantum physicists have actually been trying to tell us this kind of thing for a long time, is that the four dimensions, you know, that we inhabit and can sense, you know, with our senses, are like, it's just the tip of the iceberg, that there are multiple overlapping dimensions of reality that we have no way to know except by math that they are real. <laughs> but they are real. And uh, biblical authors have, have just been sitting there for 3,000 years waiting for us to wake up to, to this. B biblical authors to catch up. could affirm quantum <laughs> physics. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. so I want to I want to honor your time. Uh, this is uh, typically an hour long prod, uh, broadcast, yeah. and we we uh, requested that. So what we typically around this period of the show yes. is yeah. we kind of roll around with closing thoughts. And you, I, yeah. I mean, you, you did such a great job just talking about these things point to Christ. 
Um, but but what I'll do is I'll, I'll just kind of ask everyone, if you want one kind of thing to, to walk away with in the show, and I know you, you've already left us with a, with a solid one, uh, but but Michael, I'll start with you and then I'll have Dr. Uh, I'm sorry, I'll have Tim uh, give his closing <laughs> thoughts and then we'll yeah. uh, kind of wrap the show up. Yeah, uh, I, I think that it just shows, I mean, with the example that you shared about Cain and sin crouching out mm-hmm. at your door, mm-hmm. it shows how subtle e- evil is. It's like, Evil is so subtle, you don't notice it at all until it's absolutely overwhelming you. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like you see that in, a, in our culture. And it's just this, this reminder, and, and I, Paul makes this point in Ephesians 6, we all typically fall into identifying the wrong battle. And, yeah. uh, and because yes. we, we're not seeing these subtle behind-the-scenes realities and so we're we enter full full on into the fray of the cultural battle or the political battle or whatever the battle and 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 all of those things are super important but they're important while holding these two realities together mm-hmm. and uh and, and Paul says your battle is not against flesh and blood and man uh I, I don't know when I see Christians out there we we seem to be uh at least in the public sphere kind of hateful sometimes and mm-hmm. um and I think we enter into the wrong battle. I think there's some more subtle and yet extremely powerful forces at work. And, and I would love to see the church taking up the armor of God instead of just mm. armor. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's great. Uh, uh, Tim, what are your thoughts, sir? Yeah, you know, uh, so I live in Portland, which has been uh, in the news, you know, recently in, in the year 2020. Yeah. Um, uh, somehow it's become a focal point of these conflicting powers, power agendas in our culture, right? For, for different yeah. views of the nature of what America is. Um, and what's interesting is that Christians have, for the most part, just filed up on one or the other of those battle lines, haven't they? Um, and I think Paul would urge us um, to say, you know, both what you said, because you're just quoting him, Michael, right? Ephesians mm-hmm. 6.12, our... our our true enemy is not human. But even more so, what Paul, the biblical authors have a very sophisticated way of thinking about the nature of evil and how it works on humans, like you said. So you have a portrait of Adam and Eve or Cain that's very personal and individual. But then you have like a story about the building of Babylon in Genesis 11, where a whole culture exalts itself and its name and its language to the place of the gods up in the skies. And the biblical authors don't play individual evil um, and corporate evil off of each other. They're both necessary ways to think about what's going on around us. And I, I just find that really helpful um, because in these culture wars happening in America right now, uh, that's often the way is, well, evil is an individual thing. And if you want to deal with evil in our culture, people as individuals need to come to know and follow Jesus. Um, and then you have other people saying, no, it's structural. It's the structures that have to be fixed. And the biblical authors want us uh, to step back and say that it's a false dichotomy. <laughs> both have to be tackled because both are manifestations of how evil works on us as humans. And so that's something I've been thinking a lot about, uh, just given where I live and uh, what's happening in our culture right now. Yeah. And uh, so that's a takeaway that I'm, I've been pondering a lot when it comes to these topics. 
Excellent. Really well, good. thank you so much for coming on the show. It was an honor to have you today uh, on Remnant. Uh, we would ask uh, if those who are watching, this has been encouraging, life-giving to you in any way, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Maybe share this to a friend or family member. Uh, also consider donating in the description of this video. There's uh, links you can give uh, to PayPal or you become a Patreon of ours and give monthly there. Uh, we give special content to our Patreon. All of our best content is released here on YouTube where we interview pastors and teachers. If you want to like the subpar stuff, like what were our thoughts on some of the interviews what were, <laughs> what were our thoughts on eschatology, you can, you can give on Patreon and get some of those uh, shorter clips. They're not as good as, because we want, we want the, the good stuff to be free, right? Now help support <laughs> us, get on there and maybe pick our brains with some of the other theological minutia. Uh, and we'll, we'd love to pass that on to you. Yeah. Anyway. We'll see you guys next time, Monday night, 8.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, or Tuesdays, typically from four or from four to five, but today will be a little bit different. Uh, anyway, that's that. Yeah. Blessings, guys. Have a great uh, week. Dr. Mackey, Subscribe. if you would stay on for just a little bit longer, and then uh, and we'll say bye to everybody else. Peace. God bless you guys. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off these classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.